Welcome to the podcast. This is Kingdom Testimonies. Uh, I did not do Friday's podcast because I had people come out. I had the opportunity to have help out here to work on a big project, and it took the better part of the day. So that's my excuse. And I don't know if you can hear that. It's an extremely windy day out here. Um, so that might go along with the voyage and arrival of James Hudson Taylor. I'm sure that it was windy on the ocean. And then again, that it might just might be, um, bothersome to hear all of the chimes and the wind and the, it's just really windy out there. I have the door open because my new puppy dog in the afternoon I'm not quite sure what he's going to chew on and if I have the door part way open he'll stay close to the front of the cabin so we're gonna give this a try James Hudson Taylor he is leaving for his missionary journey it is September 19th 1853 Okay, that's really loud. Just a second. He's just going to go and lay down. All right. It's September 19th, 1853, and the double-masted sailing vessel Dumfries left Liverpool, England for Shanghai, China. Before her moorings were loosed, a little farewell service was held in a cabin near the stern. James Hudson Taylor with his beloved mother, and one or two friends prayed those simple prayers of deep feeling which reached the throne so easily. A psalm was read and a few hymns sung. Then the boat began moving slowly from the pier. Both hearts were as brave as any could be in similar circumstances, though actually to experience the final farewell meant more than they had realized. Dear mother, he said, do not weep. It is but for a little while, and we shall meet again. Think of the glorious object I have in leaving you. It is not for wealth or fame, but to try to bring the poor Chinese to the knowledge of Jesus. Tearing a blank leaf from his Bible, he wrote, The love of God which passeth knowledge, J.H.T., then threw it across to his mother on the pier. While we wave our handkerchiefs, wrote Mother Taylor to friends afterwards, he took his stead stand at the head, afterwards climbed into the rigging, waving his hat, looking more like a victorious hero than a stripling just entering the battlefield. Then his figure became less and less distinct, and in a few moments, passenger and ship were lost to sight. Twelve most anxious days followed. An equinoctial gale drifted the little sailing vessel from coast to coast between Wales and Ireland many times nearly dashing the little craft to pieces on the rocks. The officers said they had never seen a wilder sea. One moment the boat was high in the air and the next plunging headfirst into the trough of the sea as if it was about to go to the bottom. Unless God help us, said the captain, there is no hope. I'm going to interject here. I mean, yes, it is a very windy day out today, very blustery. But doesn't that sound a lot like Paul's journey? 
All right, let's continue. And the scripture was brought to Hudson Taylor's mind. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. Very earnestly did the young missionary pray, but he was really calm in his soul amid the furious lashings of the waves. While the captain was making his final maneuver to save his ship from being dashed to kindling on the rocks, the wind most providentially veered two points in his favor, and at last, after those twelve long terrifying days, they were able really to clear the coast and put out to sea. Wow, it took twelve days to get out to sea. Much to Hudson Taylor's delight, he found another Christian young man on board, and with the captain's permission, they held gospel services among the crew. Early in December, they rounded the Cape of Good Hope, and on January 5, 1854, reached the nearest point to Western Australia, only 120 miles distant, then steered a perilous course through the East Indian Ocean Islands to the Pacific Ocean and the China Sea, and dropped dropped anchor at Wusung, China, on March 1st, 1854. So it took him six months to get to China, China's coast. Thus five and a half long months were required to make the voyage from Liverpool to Shanghai in those early days by sailing vessel, whereas now it can be made in less than that many weeks by steamship. <laughs> so it was five and a half months, but in 1925, it only took um, less than five weeks by steamship. Isn't that funny? Our young missionary's journal was full of interesting happenings along the way, but even more space was given to accounts of inner life experiences. The following is a typical entry. December 31, on reviewing the mercies of the year and the goodness of God to me in it, I am lost in wonder, love, and praise. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hitherto hath the Lord helped me, spent the last moments of the year in prayer, and found the Lord very precious. While the Dumfries lay at anchor in a fog, waiting for a pilot to take her up the Wang Pu River from Wusung to Shanghai, the young missionary was muffled in his heaviest wraps, pacing up and down the deck. For days his luggage had been packed and he was ready to leave the ship. What peculiar, feel, peculiar feelings arise, he wrote, at the prospect of soon landing in an unknown country, in the midst of strangers, a country now to be my home and sphere of labor. Lo, I am with thee alway, alway. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Sweet promises I have nothing to fear with Jesus on my side. What was that being eagerly watched from the Dumfries? Ah, a picturesque sail and a curiously painted hull. Twelve or fourteen dark-eyed, yellow-skinned, and blue-garmented boatmen chattering in an unknown tongue. The first Chinese Hudson Taylor ever had heard. How his heart went out to them. Behind the strange, uncouth exterior, he saw the treasure he had come so far to seek, the souls for which Christ died. I did long, he wrote, to be able to tell them the glad tidings. As the Dumfries slowly moved on, the young missionary caught sight of a low-lying shore, running far to the north and the south. How it, it held his attention! His prayers were answered. The dream of yours had come true. He was looking on China at last. He wrote, 
My feelings on stepping ashore I cannot describe. My heart felt as though it had not room and must burst its bonds, while tears of gratitude and thankfulness fell from my eyes. A sense of loneliness crept over him as he realized he had not an acquaintance anywhere and not a single hand held out to welcome him. But he had three letters of introduction to people who were friends of his acquaintances in England, and naturally he expected advice from them. Inquiring for the one upon whom he relied for the most help, young Taylor was sorrowfully surprised to learn that this man had died of fever only a month or two before. With his second letter of introduction, he set out to find the missionary to whom it was addressed, only to learn that the hoped-for friend had recently left for America. Imagine the disappointment of the new missionary as he took up his third letter of introduction, from which he had all along anticipated the least help, for it had been given him by a stranger. It proved, however, to be God's channel of help. Leaving the British consulate, he wended his way for some distance across the foreign settlement in search of the London Mission compound. Strange sights, sounds, and smells greeted him from every angle. In the narrow, crowded streets, he saw hundreds of skirted men with long queues hanging down their backs, and as many trousered women with embroidered silk slippers covering their tiny bound feet. By and by, he found himself before an open gateway. Within the enclosure, there was a mission chapel, hospital, and several dwelling houses. He inquired for Dr. Medhurst, to whom his third letter of introduction was addressed, but was told that he was no longer living on the compound. While much perplexed as to his next step, Mr. Edkins, a junior missionary, came to his rescue. Then followed an introduction to all the other missionaries of the compound, including Dr. Lockhart, who, fortunately, had a room that could be spared for the new missionary whose coming was unannounced. Mr. and Mrs. Burden, a newly married couple, invited him to dinner that evening, and from the first were drawn to Hudson Taylor in a sympathy to which he warmly responded. The next morning he brought his luggage ashore from the Dumfries, bought necessary books, hired a teacher, and was ready to begin studying the Chinese language and the Mandarin dialect, the most widely spoken in China. That evening, at the weekly prayer meeting of the Missionary Circle in Shanghai, Mr. Taylor was introduced to other missionaries and was made to feel much at home among them. Before a week ended, he saw much of another side of life in Shanghai at that time. The favorable reports that had come to England the year before were marked with many changes during the five and a half months that the young missionary was on his voyage. Both the foreign settlement and the native city of Shanghai had been plunged into all the horrors of war. A local band of rebels known as the Red Turbans had obtained possession of the city, around which was now encamped an imperial army of forty to 50,000 men, the latter proving a more serious danger to the European community than even the rebels themselves. Now, in addition to the horrors of war, he was facing another serious problem brought about by the war. The good people of the London Mission compound had housed him ever since his unexpected arrival in Shanghai, and his sensitive nature was feeling very keenly his indebtedness to their gen generosity. Every day he had searched for a house or even a room that he could rent and call his own, but so many houses in the native city had just been destroyed by the war, and hundreds of Chinese had flocked into the foreign settlement for better protection 
so that it seemed impossible to obtain a suitable room anywhere. Furthermore, the Crimean War, in which England was involved, had broken out that same spring, which in connection with the Taiping Rebellion, now at such a terrible stage in China, altered the value of English money. In normal times, four shillings would buy a Chinese dollar, but now six or even seven were required and the cost was still increasing. Thus, for the small sum of English money which Hudson Taylor had upon landing in Shanghai, he could not obtain many Chinese dollars. And these few dollars did not promise to last very long, while war and famine prices had to be paid for everything. Letters and money were expected from London, but nothing had come yet. His situation became more and more critical. True, he was in a good home, had plenty to eat, and was in comparative safety so far as the war was concerned. The help he received from the members of the LMS in many ways was of untold value. But as he did not belong to their society, he was not prepared to work with or for them. Therefore, he felt like an intruder in another bird's nest. Summer was now upon them, when one lives in a sweat bath nearly all the time, for it is not uncommon for the temperature to keep at 80 degrees at night for weeks at a time. Prickly heat mosquitoes also had to be reckoned with, and the young missionary found much grace was needed to bear all this without irritability, and at the same time keep on steadily with the study of the Chinese language. His shortage of, shortage of salary and the impossibility of obtaining a house, unless he bought land and built, had been laid before the home secretaries over and over again, yet in none of their letters was reference made to any of these difficulties. As a climax to Mr. Taylor's troubles, news came in a roundabout way that the CES was sending out Dr. Parker with his wife and three children to Shanghai. Yet no information direct from the society came to this effect, which made the situation all the more embarrassing. Of course, he would be expected to have lodging for them, but how could he, when a house or even a room for himself, could not be rented in the settlement nor the native city, and he had not the money to build? Questions of all kinds were put to him as to where these people would live. Does the society advise you to build? Have you bought land? When will they arrive? But a definite answer could be given to none of them. I have made it a matter of prayer and have given it entirely into the Lord's hands. He will provide and be my guide in this, as well as in every other perplexing step, said Mr. Taylor. Chapter 8, A House, A Beginning, Reinforcements Right among the people, near imperial camps, within range of their guns and those of the rebels, was a native house built of wood, very old and rickety, with seven rooms downstairs and five up, doors and passages without number, heaps of dirt and rubbish everywhere, ten or more days in making the bargain for this through interpreters, and Hudson Taylor was in possession of the key to a shelter wherein he could live his independent life once more, and where he could have a place to take expected colleagues upon their arrival. Happy in this prospect, on August 30, he bade farewell to the kind friends with whom he had lived during his first six months in China. He was able to speak a little of the language now, and felt that he was able to begin a small work of his own. The Chinese soon got to know that the white man living among them was a doctor, so many sick ones came to him for treatment. While medical aid was being provided, they were always told about Jesus the Savior. 
A day school was soon open for both boys and girls and was well attended. With everything in working order and his heart full of God's blessing, Mr. Taylor began to taste some of the real joys which belong to missionary life. Interwoven with these new joys came trials, great and small, difficulties of household management, quarrels between his servants and the neighbors, deep concern for his cook who had taken typhus fever, disappointment with one of his teachers who had to be dismissed, discouragement in language study, all these on top of several attacks of sickness made him unfit to bear the strain of the skirmishing soldiers. Added to these difficulties came a sorrow occasioned by the death of Mrs. Burden, for she and Mr. Burden had been his most intimate friends. Then, too, his anxiety about money matters was increasing, no advice from the society having yet come. His own funds were exhausted, and he was compelled to make use of a letter of credit they had given him before leaving London, but even this did not say to what extent his bills would be honored. In considering the life of this young man, we must not forget that the deepest yearnings of his soul and his most earnest prayers were not for fame or honor, but for widespread usefulness. Could he, at the time of his earliest Christian experience, have looked 50 years into the future and have understood what of sorrow, suffering, and trial was necessary for an answer to his prayers? Would he have shrunk from the scene? Would he have ceased to pray that prayer? The hero of our story prayed prayers that were to be answered far beyond what he asked or thought. But before such marvelous answers came, he had to go through needed training at the hands of the great teacher. He needed to suffer that his heart might be made stronger, yet more tender, than others. Little as he or anyone else imagined, he was the pioneer of a work in China in which hundreds of others were to engage later. Therefore, he must feel every burden that his followers might be compelled to feel. He who was to be used of God to dry so many tears must himself weep. He who was to encourage thousands in a childlike trust must learn, in his own case, deep lessons of a father's loving care. So difficulties were permitted to gather round him, especially at first when every impression was vivid and lasting, difficulties attended by many a deliverance to cheer him on his way. Um. I, I, I need to interject something. I've been thinking about this a little bit lately. Um, so it's interesting. It says, therefore, he must feel every burden that his followers might be compelled to feel. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? You know, he, he went through everything. Well, I, I should say he, he suffered everything so he knows how we feel in our sufferings. And every pioneer has to go through that. It's, it's very interesting. Um, it's like being, quote-unquote, a firstborn. If you go through everything to pave a road or pave a highway for others, if you take on the pioneering and the suffering and all of it to pave a road for others, you're the first to go that way, just like Jesus was the firstborn. He paved the way for us to come after him. So he understands all our sufferings. I'm not saying that James Hudson Taylor was like Jesus in that he was a savior, 
but he was the first to pave the way and to make it possible for others to do the work later on. It's just very interesting to me. Maybe, maybe I didn't explain that the best, but okay. November came. The almost unbearable hot days and nights were followed by the sharp winds of autumn whizzing through crevices of the old house at the north gate. It could not be warm even if there were plenty of stoves and fuel. The occupant had only two thin blankets. His clothing had all become so shabby that he was ashamed to be seen by other missionaries. What was to be done with Dr. and Mrs. Parker and their three children, who were now so soon to arrive in Shanghai? He had thought that difficulty was met in taking the big house, but finding it now too uncomfortable for even a single young man, he was very sure that a woman with three children could not spend a night there. His last dollar was almost gone. He did not know where the next was coming from. Neither money nor instructions had come from the society. The situation among the soldiers all about him was becoming more desperate. Where to go or what to do, he knew not. In reality, though, he did know. Had he not overcome past difficulties by prayer? Upon his knees, then, he determined to seek an answer to his present problems. It was while he was in this attitude of body and of mind that a messenger came to say Mr. Burden was taking his motherless babe out of their cozy little home from which the light had fled, and if he wished to rent the house, he must take it at once. Another missionary who was also seeking a home for his family was glad to pay half the rent for the use of three rooms in Mr. Burden's house. With considerable pain at having to leave the scene of his first direct missionary work, Mr. Taylor returned on Saturday, November 25th, to the same home in which he had been so welcome upon his arrival in China. On Monday, while he was at the North Gate to remove the last of his belongings, the long-expected Dr. Parker, Parker arrived. In the joy of meeting and the excitement of bringing their luggage from the ship, Mr. Taylor had not thought of the impression the small and practically unfurnished house into which he was taking the new arrivals would make upon them. But they were strong, sensible Scotch people, quite prepared to put up with hardship, hardships. Only a thin partition separated the nursery from Hudson Taylor's bedroom which had to be used by both Dr. Parker and Mr. Taylor himself as a study. Each had his own teacher at the same time in one small room. This could be met with comparative ease for a few hours at a time, or even for a few weeks. But when it came to being stretched over the entire winter and spring, much grace was required on the part of all to keep sweet-tempered. Added to this worry and strain was the money matter suspense. The CES was very tardy in sending money or even a letter of credit to either Dr. Parker or Hudson Taylor. The former's ability as a medical man would have provided a very comfortable living for his family in Shanghai, and then temptation to accept offered positions was strong. However, trueness to his calling then meant a sacrifice which the Lord was pleased richly to reward in his own way and time. Chapter 9. A Houseboat Itinerant Mr. Edkins hired a houseboat which was roomy and fortunately clean. It had one tall mast and a large sail. Even though the cabin was very airy, it protected them from wind and rain. In this, Mr. Edkins and Hudson Taylor arranged their clothes, bedding, food baskets, medical supplies, instruments, and a large assortment of gospel portions and tracts. What for? 
Did they not have a house to live in? Why should they set up housekeeping on a boat? Oh, they were going to follow a canal or river to country villages and towns, preaching to the heathen Chinese the love of Jesus. Everything being so different from anything Mr. Taylor had experienced before, lasting impressions were made upon his mind. There was a good view of the low-lying country as the boat glided through the waterway, leaving Shanghai in the distance. There were innumerable hamlets, villages, towns, and cities, homes of the living. Then there were thousands of grave mounds, indicating the city of the dead. How strange seemed the first night that they spent on this houseboat. As the evening shadows grew longer, which they did so early on those short December days, scores and scores of other boats were casting anchor, all as close together as motor cars today in a public parking place. Their object for this huddling together was protection against pirates. After supper, the two missionaries among this great crowd of Chinese began to make known their purpose in being there. Conspicuous as they were for their white faces, fair eyes, blue eye, fair hair, blue eyes, and English dress, among these people with yellow faces, jet black hair, and eyes, and blue cotton padded garments, scarcely no time at all was required for them to become surrounded by a large audience. The dim light from the cabin fell upon those faces so full of interest, yet almost devoid of comprehension as they listened for the first time to the old, old story of Jesus and his love. The simple service could not last long, for boat people rise with the morning's first streak of light and therefore must retire early. Next morning, when the missionaries awoke, they found themselves nearing the large city of Sungking, about 40 miles south of Shanghai. Here they gave away books and preached to the crowds on the streets. Someone invited them to visit the holy man. The tiny room in which this strange person had been walled up for years was in connection with a Buddhist monastery, led by an escort of shaven-headed, yellow-robed priests. They found a miserable human being. The only point of contact that he had had with the outside world was through a small opening in the wall left by the builders of this little cell. It was scarcely large enough to permit the passage of one's hand. There in the darkness, almost motionless, unwashed, and alone, this holy man, in quotation marks, passed his days and nights in silence. Fortunately, Mr. Edkins could speak a dialect with which this man was familiar. So the two missionaries earnestly prayed that the glad tidings of great joy, which the holy man heard for the first time and perhaps the only time, might br bright light and salvation to his soul. But the day had an unexpected ending. Curious crowds on the streets became excited and noisy. The missionaries saw they could not return to their boat the way they had come, for the city gates were closed and the people were swarming all around to prevent the escape of the foreigners in that direction. Unheard by human ears, prayers for deliverance were ascending to the throne of grace from these pilgrims in a strange city among heathen people. Being a considerable distance from their own boat... They called many other boats to take them, but each after the other refused, much to the amusement of the throng. Seeing that something must be done, Hudson Taylor jumped into a passing boat, pulled it to the bank for Mr. Ed, Mr. Edkins, and the two were off to safety. Overwhelmed with surprise, the owner stood speechless, watching the proceedings, 
while the people on shore were much enraged to see how cleverly the foreigners had escaped. This was just the beginning of a very long line of experiences Mr. Taylor was, having, was to have in trying multitudes of angry Chinese. While the setting of the sun on the fourth day of the journey, the missionaries came in sight of Kaxing, the city of their destination. Far out along the riverbank, outside the walls of the city, reached the suburbs of the ancient city. Kaxing was a great center of wealth and learning 20 centuries before Jesus was born. When Ur of the Chaldees flourished in Abraham's time, Kaxing, China also flourished. Even at this time, with her thriving industries of printing and publishing and the manufacture of silk, cotton, brass, and copper, Kaxing had never heard the slightest sound of the gospel until Hudson Taylor and Mr. Edkins ventured within its walls, distributing thousands of tracts and conversing personally with callers at the boat. Full of zeal and enthusiasm for further experience in this kind of work, the missionaries returned to Shanghai before the end of the year. As there seemed nothing in particular to keep young Taylor in Shanghai at this time, he bought a houseboat of his own and set out January 25, 1855, on his second itinerary in midwinter and alone. His zeal did not cool by the predicament in which he found himself the next morning. High banks on either side of his boat, covered with snow, and a thick covering of ice on the river retarded his progress. The only way by which he could proceed at all was to break a channel in the ice, a foot at a time, then thrust a long pole into the bank and push the boat its length ahead, a process that had to be continued for hours. Many experiences were indelibly stamped upon the memory of this missionary while pioneering among numerous villages and cities on this solitary journey. In that lawless country where Taiping rebels were still fighting against the government, how easily might this lone foreigner have been seized and held for ransom, or even tortured and killed? He wrote afterwards, I knew that I was where duty had placed me and felt that, though solitary, I was not alone. By and by, he found himself in Shanghai again, where war clouds hung heavier and darker than ever. Rumors were afloat that an attack would be made on the foreign settlement by the rebels, in which event none could escape from the government troops, for they would be glad enough to have the white men all massacred so they could share the spoils. Anxious as these times were, Hudson Taylor proceeded to make plans for his third tour in outlying districts. All right, we'll stop there. Wow, <clears throat> guy's got a lot of hook spa, whatever that means. Okay, so we did chapters seven through nine today. The chapters are getting a little bit shorter. I can see we're about halfway through. Um, and it's getting very interesting what's happening to James Hudson Taylor. He is by himself going into inland China where, while there's a war going on and the Chinese are like other religions, Buddhist or whatever, and they're getting angry. They don't want him there, but he has this mission in his heart and he is compelled by God to do it and God's going to see him through it. And so he's doing it. Got to hand it to him. Wow. People don't have that. <laughs> I mean, there's missionaries out there today, and we don't know what they're going through. We really don't. 
but this guy 100 years ago paved the way into China. That is a massive enemy territory. <clears throat> it's a pretty amazing story. I'm sure you'll agree. Okay, well with that, we will pick it up again tomorrow on chapter 10, and I pray you have a blessed day.